I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I am Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I can't see out of those shades. I tried to be goth for a minute. It made me so cool I didn't see what was going on in the world. <laughs> um, okay, uh, we're still seating people. If you have an empty seat next to you, would you raise your hand? Some of the standing room folks may want to be sitting room if you want to be, and as others come in, uh, now that you know where the seats are, find your way. I'm curious, how many are here tonight who were here last month for David Rumsey's talk? That's pretty interesting. How about the month before that? Now, continuity's cool. That's second Fridays. Long Now Foundation really is about continuity. Uh, we, our cut line, the explanation is uh, fostering long-term responsibility. And continuity thought of and measured and acted on in terms of centuries, responsibility in terms of centuries. And one of the things that thinking about all of that and acting in ways that, that take the long term seriously is about bridging discontinuities in civilization and history, economics and so on. What if there's a discontinuity that can't be bridged? This is part of the question which is posed by the idea of the singularity of technology self-accelerating itself so far, so fast, that uh, it's a totally different world and bridges are out of the question, continuity is out of the question. So that's why we invited Bruce Sterling, who's been in the thick of a lot of the thinking about this uh, and himself is technologically intensely aware, uh, writes about it as well as uh, his science fiction. And his perspective, I think, is, is one that um, will be worth listening to. Please welcome the singular Bruce Sterling. I forgot to mention, Bruce, while you're getting your notes together, uh, the, some of you haven't been here before, on the back of these sheets is blank and a place where you're welcome to write questions. And the way that we do the question business is uh, there'll be people in the yellow hard hats going up and down collecting the questions during the talk and after the talk and bringing them up. Kevin Kelly and I will look through them and find the ones that are toughest on Bruce and, <laughs> and ask those. Put your name on there too. And uh, so we'll call out your name if you want to stand up and um, take responsibility for your words, that's great. There's also a line at the bottom if you want to get regular email notification about these talks. Whether or not you have a question, put your email address on there and give it to us, and uh, you'll get lots of cool spam. Okay, well, thanks for that uh, introduction. Yeah, I am, uh, I am Bruce Sterling. Uh, and this is my presentation, The Singularity, Your Future as a Black Hole. 
very grateful, really, for the kindness and hospitality of the Long Now Org. And these guys are just hard to beat, my my 10,000-year-old friends. <clears throat> and what a gorgeous audience they have pulled out of the woodwork of the Bay Area here. <laughs> you guys are something else. Just watching you trickle in was making the hair rise on the back of my neck. <clears throat> Um, okay, so uh, you know, as is my want, I'd like to sort of back up a little and consider the history of the idea of the uh, singularity so as to get a good running start on considering its future. Well, uh, John von Neumann talked about this in the 1950s. He was the first guy to sort of raise the prospect. He was in this conversation with Stanislav Ulam, who was a running buddy of his back in the Ur days of computation. and. Von Neumann was speculating that there might someday be a rate of technological advancement so quick that it sort of exceeded human intelligibility, right? Just like happens so quickly we can't get our heads around it. So that's the earliest version of a singularity, and he actually used the term singularity, von Neumann did. The the rate of change in technology accelerates until it's literally mind-boggling and... uh, beyond social control, and even beyond human comprehension. Uh, And Werner Vinge gives credit to uh, von Neumann, uh, although the singularity is is considered Werner Vinge's idea, and I think he he deserves that credit. He's a a modest guy, but uh, von Neumann did not, in fact, publish that subject at all. He was merely talking about it to Ulam, and Ulam happened to sort of name drop it, so it's a precursor of of the more of the better uh, the better established Vingian singularity, and so who's this guy Vingy? Well, he's this math professor in San Diego, very much esteemed science fiction writer, very nice guy personally. So uh, Vingy's version of the singularity is more specific. It comes tied to this specific prophecy that he made. So you know, what's the elevator pitch? Well, I'll, I'll quote Vingy here. I believe that the creation of greater than human intelligence will occur during the next 30 years. I'll be surprised if this event occurs before 2005 or after 2030. This is uh, dated 1983. So, you know, Vinci's idea is uh, kind of an elaboration of von Neumann's. In the von Neumann version, we're not intelligent enough to keep up with technology. While in the Vinci version, technology itself has some kind of direct effect on the nature of intelligence, and that's what really puts the cat among the pigeons, right? So what but both these notions have in common is this idea of an accelerating rate of change that ends in some kind of literally unimaginable crash, right? That's a singularity. And this happens in the relatively near term. Like, you know, within the lifetime of young people today. And it's sudden, and presumably it's irrevocable. So that's, that's a singularity. It's, it's, an end of a his, it's an end of history notion, one among many, historically speaking. And since uh, it was formulated in the 50s and uh, elaborated in the early 90s, it's an idea which is now showing its age, like most end of history notions do.
So, you know, when the notion first kind of pops up on the radar screen, von Neumann's just blue skying about it. It's the 50s. He never actually published anything, whereas Vinge is, like, upset about it and, and assuming a moral stance as the sci-fi prophet of doom. <laughs> so he wrote this paper, Vinge did, famous paper, 1983, The Coming Technological Singularity, how to survive in the post-human era. <laughs> so you can see he's not actually thrilled by the prospect. In fact, if you read the paper, the original paper, which is always a good idea, what you see from Vinji is actually this kind of lugubrious Bill Joy expectation of mass extermination. Well, you know, the world hasn't, in fact, ended yet. Um, and you can even argue, I think, that the rate of change that is common to both these notions of singularity, the von Neumann version and the, the Vinge version, is itself subject to question. Because computer networks, in fact, accelerated wildly, thanks to von Neumann's architecture and a lot of developmental work, but you didn't really see that much wildly accelerating action in other networks, like, say, electrical power networks, which are not really that different than they were in the 50s. Water networks, oil pipelines, none of these are radically accelerating out of control. And in fact, you could sort of say that this pitch of both von Neumann's and Vinge's are really examples of mathematical and computer science intellectual imperialism. These are people who are saying that we are technology. Computers are technology. Just look at those technology stocks. I mean, that just proves where rare it's at. You know, the water networks aren't booming. There aren't any water dot-com stocks. But, you know, we got water shortages cropping up all over the world right now. Oh, so, oh. I think the biggest impact of this idea has not been in the stock market or really even in technical development. The biggest impact has been literary. It's a cultural problem. And it turned out to be a, a very potent paradox for science fiction as a cultural enterprise. You know, and why is this? You know, why should sci-fi writers really get in a sweat about this when it's supposed to exterminate everybody you know, why, why are we, like, in a bunch about it? Well, you see, a singularity, a singularity is a place where matters that would be of great importance and interest to futurists become impossible to write about. <laughs> we can't write about it and sell any product about it merely because we futurists are, in point of fact, human beings. And since we're human, we have, you know, inherent human constraints, cultural constraints and verbal limitations and cognitive weaknesses and so forth. We've never been 200 years old, and we don't really have a machine-boosted IQ of 812, and... We haven't been downloaded into silicon. We don't have any industrial strength DNA in our cells. Now, we can see that such situations seem more or less plausible. But they're just so profoundly divorced from contemporary human experience that we can't comprehend them. 
And worse yet, we can't describe them. We can't write about them and convey that to other people. So it's a, it's a writer's block situation, the singularity. It's like the event horizon of a black hole, because the singularity is a term from astrophysics as well as mathematics. There's no possible communication between us and the world beyond a singularity because our merely human reality has been swallowed in this kind of Einsteinian warp and we can't even get so much as a photon of information back from the situation beyond that moment in history. And it's just hard to talk about that convincingly. (laughs) Uh, It's paradoxical. Right? It's sort of like trying to lift yourself by your own belt. And like most paradoxes, it's, it's a problem of definitional systems. Um, there's a whole lot of sci-fi hand-waving around this magic term, intelligence. Just have a look here. Right, the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence... AI and hard AI are are particularly associated with singularity thinking. Here are some of Vinge's notions that, you know, you've got cyclical developments in in various emerging technologies, and as the technologies get hairier, they seem to be uh, advancing more quickly. And this is the classic sort of singularitarian argument here. Okay, well, here we've got our pics of ourselves, or rather our machines, being very brainy and evolving up to the point where we're endangering the limits of human cognition. Soon they'll be exceeded, and we will, you know, man will be presumably replaced by the Superman up here. And you can see it kind of arcing along from 1900 instead of ambling, and then like taking up speed. And we've got the... um, the equivalent in the natural world of the processing power of these machines. So, you know, they used to be as smart as a bacterium, and then they got up to nematode size, and then a bunch of nematodes kind of magically become a spider, and then some spiders kind of boot up to lizards. And, <laughs> you know, and, and the 1995 trends is kind of clearly going to shoot over right over the head of the Cro-Magnon guy in the gym shorts there. And, <laughs> We're kind of over at that point. Um, but, you know, in point of fact, we don't know what intelligence is, and we don't really even know what cognition is, and I'm not even sure we know what computation is. And if you fail to, like, define your terms, it's kind of very easy to divide by zero and reach some kind of infinite exponential speed. Um, you know, the idea of a technology that's being too built too fast for straight people to comprehend. That's a very 1990s bubble idea, really. Kind of lacks a business model. <laughs> and and I, I think the most, the most interesting kind of flaw in this analogy here, this, this metaphorical comparison, is that um, bacteria are not extinct. Right? But most of everything that is alive is bacteria. Whereas if you look at the machines that are bacterial level, Vax, DecVax, IBM, Whirlwind, Univac, ENIAC, they are gone. They are absolutely gone. They're junk. In fact, even the nematodes on the far side are extinct now. In fact, there's practically nothing on this list that's still alive. 
There is massive extinction all the way under the mouse. There's not a single surviving computer on the far side. So this suggests to me that our analogy is somehow vacuous. Um, and, you know, and Vinji is aware of this. Um, you know, I mean, life is this multi-level ecosystem, and our computer technology is just this sort of thin, fragile scrim up at the top. So he argues that, you know, perhaps even if machines don't somehow directly achieve human equivalence, well, maybe they could wake up in some other method, like a network of them connected could somehow achieve sentience or whatever. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe if you put enough 64K toasters together into a room, they do sort of self-assemble and become Einstein. <laughs> but, but think of all the machines that are in the dump and all the chips that have already been thrown away. What if there are chips in a dump? And, and to say that something will wake up is not really subject to falsifiability. Like, we're not really sure how ants think, right? Or for that matter, lizards or nematodes. We don't have any metrics for measuring waking. So, you know, how are we to say that an ant pile might wake up? Or maybe a whole jungle full of ants would be connected over their trails and they would mysteriously wake up. Or why not a redwood forest or an oil pipeline? How do you falsify a claim like that? It's not a scientific claim if it's not falsifiable. So then um, Vinji elides this difficulty, too, by suggesting that, well, maybe there'll be a very close relationship between humans and computers that will have radical improvements in the computer-human interface. And then you actually see this kind of magical waking up dust somehow moving into the, the silicon world because it kind of bleeds over through the computer-human interface. Well, there we go. Well, that's, that's us marching into our silicon future. <laughs> this is cruel, you know. <laughs> this one's, the next one's going to hurt. <laughs> there really hasn't been a lot of improvement in the human-computer interface. And the more nearly human it gets, the kind of more horrible it is. These are even deader than the Mac 2FX, actually. <laughs> and then there's the third version of a singularity, which doesn't really rely on machines at all. We don't have to sort of bleed any consciousness into, into silicon. We just, well, as Vinci puts it, biological science may provide means to improve natural human intellect. In other words, we can ramp up our own brains. We can have human cognition get industrialized and kind of understand how our own brains work and kind of ramp that up through some artificial method. And um, I suspect that idea may have some traction. That one I actually take quite seriously. I'm a hard AI skeptic, not because you know I'm like convinced by the Searle arguments or so forth, but just because I don't see much evidence on the ground. I think it's been long enough now that if we were approaching that, there would, 
there would clearly be some line of progress that would get us there, and we've sort of tried it from the top down, and we've tried it from the bottom up, and it's just not going. I, I think it's a bad metaphor. But tinkering with human cognition strikes me as something that sort of has means, motive, and opportunity. Uh, I, I do find AI very interesting from a literary perspective, and I, I've often written about it in fiction, but I don't really see much evidence of it in the, in the real world. The, the tinkering with human neural behavior is something I really do fret about some. I'm not sure there's a singularity situation there, but I think that really is catnip for the intelligentsia, just the ability to sort of mess with your own neural processes. And it really plays to people's pride in a very painful and tempting way. It's like, well, I'm smart, and I love myself for being smart. And if we smart guys were just more like we already are, then we'd be godlike. <laughs> Which is, you know, a difficult argument to have with an intellectual, sort of like saying, shouldn't you argue worse? You know, or, or be like a little more tardy in pursuing truth and enlightenment. Um, but, you know, if you ponder it, it might be that being extremely intelligent through artificial means might be either extremely unpleasant, like just a drag, or it might be no big deal. If you look at people historically who clearly were extremely intelligent, I mean, just breakout levels of multilateral brilliance, people like Goethe or Leonardo or Charles Babbage, they didn't really get much traction on the ground. They liked to hang out with aristocrats, you know, the Weimar group, or you know, they would ingratiate themselves with small-scale courts who would indulge them and. They spent a lot of time amusing themselves in their notebooks, really. We don't know what the brain does right now. You know, it, it's sort of sexy to say that you could improve intelligence by ramping up the brain, but I'm not sure that the brain's primary products are anything that we would recognize as intelligence, or that people who consider themselves to be brainy by contemporary standards are genuinely brainy in an anatomical sense. Like, suppose you took, like, some super smart pills right out of the Vinji lab, and you found that, like, you got really good at, say, listening. <laughs> or maybe it would radically ramp up your emotional intelligence, that you'd say, you know the reason I'm so interested in eating these pills? I'm a closeted gay. <laughs> or maybe it would radically improve your bodily coordination, like you'd eat it hoping to get smart and like, I can dance! <laughs> or you might have just painful moments of revelation about your previous behavior. No wonder I can't get a date. <laughs> well, it's interesting to tear at the loose threads of singularity, you know, just really try and think about it. Well, it is a very difficult thing to predict because it's such a radical discontinuity in what we have come to understand. But if you're a futurist and you can't sort of predict a thing by looking at the change drivers, it can be fruitful to sort of think in terms of historical analogy. 
instead. So, you know, you can ask yourself, has anything like a singularity ever happened in human society before? Do we actually have any hands-on experience with events like this? And I think there are three. So, you know, what's the sort of picture? Well, as Vinji says, from from the human point of view, this change will be a throwing away of all previous rules, perhaps in the blink of an eye, an exponential runaway beyond any hope of control. Well, when have we ever had a throwing away of all the previous rules in the blink of an eye? Right? 1945, right? Atom bomb. People sort of wake up. You've been in a trench war for six years, four years. Like front page of the newspaper, secret scientific development by boffins out in desert. Two cities leveled, war over, Japan surrenders, new era dawns, mankind has ability to exterminate world. And you can see like the shock of this revelation percolate through society for five or six years and, and really a frantic kind of social effort to just of people to get their heads around it, just not to despair, right? Um, another one, lysergic acid. Now, lysergic acid spreads very rapidly, and it, you eat it, and it feels like a throwing away of all the previous rules in the blink of an eye, right? It's not really a singularity, but it presents you with a perception of one. It's like you're really high for eight hours, and you think, God, nothing can be the same after this. But, you know, it is. (laughs) And then the last one is computer viruses, which I think really have a kind of singularitarian behavior. Singularitarian. That just rocks so hard. Computer viruses have classic singularitarian behavior because they're created by very small groups and they spread super rapidly in this cascading effect where you sort of kick one domino and every Microsoft box on the planet goes ape. And, <laughs> and, the, you know, and the network sort of ends up lobotomized. But, you know, it doesn't stay down, right? And maybe the dot-com boom in finance could be thought of as an economic singularity, but it really lasted too long for that. It was like 17 years. But what's the continuity between these things, atom bombs, computer viruses, LSD, the dot-com boom? None of them exhibited any staying power. And none of them really lived up to their hype. Right? They did, in fact, get sort of swamped eventually and real-world, ethical, local, legal, and social implications. They didn't stay marvelous. The atom bomb was marvelous for quite a while. The atomic age lasted, I don't know, maybe 17 years before the romance just wore off the idea of getting your ass blown up. Um, you know, and now there, there are a few things less romantic than a nuclear power plant. This is absolutely considered a poisonous source of garbage. It's impossible to romanticize one. And the bomb has lost all its charm. Today's bomb is the dirty bomb, and all all bombs are dirty. Whereas LSD, which, you know, had a fantastic effect, especially in this town, there's, (laughs) there's an LSD famine worldwide right now. There's, there's, There's very little LSD available. It has, the usage of LSD has crashed during the Bush administration. It's 
One of the few, well, it's, it's one of the few major popular drugs that has actually sort of fallen off the social radar. You know, there just aren't that many people who take it or use it. When was the, when was the last time you saw headlines about anybody arrested with LSD? You know, this is, well. <laughs> oh, um. Here we have some groups who've been associating themselves with singularitarian, singularitarian ideas, and they're all web-based groups. I'm loving the mouse pad there. Um, now, what's, uh, what's with these groups? Well, they, they're rather kind of similar to virus writing groups in that they're electronically based enthusiasts. People in there, they're almost all online. They're small groups of loosely attached thinkers, widely scattered geographically, probably easily rounded up should they ever create serious trouble. <laughs> There are, there are a few connections there, like Skynet. S Skynet is a notion out of a Terminator, your governor's favorite film. <laughs> um, but that, was, uh, that term, Skynet, which was you know, the, the machine that builds the Terminator, was taken over by a bunch of German worm and virus kids, the guys who did Netsky and Sasser, virus-writing gangs as information activists who are causing these virus-driven singularities faster than any possible patch. Now, the, the thing I like best about these guys, and there are kind of a lot of them, although they're basically 30 guys under a different set of bumper stickers, <laughs> um, is that they don't shoot each other, or at least they don't yet shoot each other. They're, they're small extremist groups, and they are extremist groups. But they're not that bad to have around. They've got a track record. There's you know, been quite some time that people have had serious interest in singularity activism, but they don't seem to do anything illegal. There's like no public fist fights, very few lawsuits. They're not sticking the law on one another. We haven't seen a cult slaughter along the Heaven's Gate style thing. They, they haven't placed any nerve gas in subways. They just don't behave like classic cultists. Um, and, you know, in, a, in an odd kind of way, they're very similar to cyberpunk writers who you know, now also have kind of a long history behind them. And these are guys who have you know, the usual writerly divorce rates and substance abuse problems. But um, I think the most interesting thing about cyberpunks, historically speaking, is that none of them are dead yet. By the standards of literary movements or artistic movements, there should have been at least a couple of hangings, you know, <laughs> ODs. You know, they're hard to kill. They're actually kind of low-key. Now, uh, you, you have to wonder why, you know, that these, these, these singularitarian groups, you know, why haven't they, like, started tying into one another? Why aren't they flame-warring? You know, why aren't there purges? Isn't there like bitter fighting between popes of post-humanism? You know, why are they so relatively well-behaved and really even kind of civilized and artsy? Um, why are they so charmingly innocent and unworldly, really? And I think one of the reasons is they don't feel that they have to work very hard. <laughs> you 
They don't feel they have to work very hard because they think historical determinism is on their side. They're really mesmerized by the auto-catalyzing cascade effect of the singularity. So they don't have to fret about rounding up voters or raising funds or seriously persuading the press because, you know, they just got this sort of smooth line on a 2D graph. You know, why bother? I mean, pretty soon we'll be superhuman. And it's bound to happen to us because we're the early adapters. You know, it, it never occurs to these pioneers that they might be just brusquely cast aside while actual improvements were monopolized by the genuinely rich and powerful elite within our society. Never occurs to them. <laughs> and it doesn't really occur to them either that high-speed technologies might spread like bread mold but have very short lifespans. That you might see apple twos everywhere and then just see them vanish like the morning dew achieve nothing that lasts, just like LSD and our friend the atom and the empty offices of the dead dot-coms. It's not on their emotional radar. Well, I'm going to quote Vinji again here. He says, for me, the superhumanity is the essence of the singularity. Without that, we would get a glut of technical riches never properly absorbed. So take away the magical hard AI fairy dust, and what do you get from these slopes, these graphs? You get a glut of technical riches never properly absorbed. That sounds to me like a really great description of the current historical epoch. It's a glut of technical riches we're unable to absorb. And instead of our brains mystically turning into spiritual supercomputers, we have this glut of technical riches, which is causing us a lasting bloat and indigestion and diarrhea and cramps and a techno-obesity and pills, chills, and belly aches. It's a gut-level situation, not a brainy one. And I suspect we ought to get used to that and take that kind of life quite seriously and learn to love it, even, because we're probably going to be living that for as long as the eye can see. Now let's check a real grapher. <laughs> see, instead of the smooth, exponential rising toward transcendence over Cro-Magnon boy. This is what Gartner likes to call the technology usage and hype cycle. The technology trigger, which would be, say, Finji's speech, is followed by the eager peak of inflated expectations, which crashes into the trough of disillusionment and of the Woodstock to Altamont slope. <laughs> and then there's the slope of enlightenment when people actually start to understand what's going on 
And then the plateau of productivity where they can make some money and hire Gartner. <laughs> now, Gartner, being corporate futurists, cannot stretch the arrow any farther than this, which is into the area of obsolescence and abandonment. Now, even though they're futurists, if you hire an outfit like Gartner, they will not really come and tell you, you know something? Your business is over. <laughs> you need to stop paying us and just quit. <laughs> so they have things to hide, which I think in their own way are as revealing as the other slope. But this is the slope we're living. It's not that 1993 slope. This is our slope, right there. Here's another one, the classic S-curve. This is from Rand. Kind of whipping along up there, hard infrastructure constraints, economic in per capita leadership. This is when nobody can afford the box and nobody knows how to make it work. Then part two, institutional factors, language factors. It's like, all right, white guys get it. <laughs> and then it like kills off at the top of the cultural factors there. It's like, I don't care what the heck you pointy-headed liberals have to say about this. I ain't buying it, and I don't want it. <laughs> and even this lacks part six, which is obsolescence and death the reign of the archaic, the abandoned, and the corny. Really, if you saw Windows 3.0 on the sidewalk outside the building, would you bend over and pick it up? <laughs> so I would argue that the infinite rising slope is a fantasy that lacks the realistic behavior of a technology embedded in human society. It just doesn't behave like normal technologies do, a singularity. For one thing, there are no subcultural adaptations of it, no street finding its own uses for a singularity. The atom bomb came out of the military, the LSD came out of biochem labs, Viruses come out of deviant technical subcultures, but we don't really see a wide variety of singularities picked up by small interest groups. There's only like one, singularitarians. We don't have like a right-wing singularity, a left-wing singularity, a military one, an academic one. And technologies are generally championed by groups of adapters, but the singularity just sort of wipes the board clean. It's sort of a ship moving at top speed that never gets the barnacles of ethical, legal, and social implications, which every other technology does. It's sort of the golden glory of techno-determinism. And if you read works on technical development, say works of, say, Professor Utterback at MIT or Clayton Christensen, author of The Innovator's Dilemma, which talks about innovations attempting to get a foothold within society, you see factors like industrial consolidation, standard setting, shakeouts of industries after the entrepreneurial phase, technological lock-in. None of these things are true of the singularity. You know why? Because it's not proper to think of it 
It's unseemly for scientists who are soaked in the sense of cosmic wonder to hang out with mere industrialists, or worse yet, to hang out with end users. (laughs) The singularity has no end users. You have infinite life groups like these guys. There we go. But we don't really have, like, super nano laundry soap for nano soccer moms. <laughs> and children. What are children in a singularity world? There aren't any. Children can't be born post-singular. We're the superhumans. But we never bother to have any kids. <laughs> They might criticize us, our children. They might say that we handled our emergent godliness rather poorly. (laughs) Can't really have that. Better to just evade the issue of children entirely. But real futurists have children. People who have children have no children, have no future. Oh. It's a very provocative idea, and it's already bred a number of schools of thought. Woohoo! I'm enjoying this. Okay, right. Ah, Okay, the schools of thought for the singularity. How do you deal with this problem? All right, number one, vast majority of people, everybody who's not in this room, lives in San Francisco. The ha-hoo-me contingent. The just-no-way skeptics. You're like, what? 2030 and the world ends? Just no way. And the majority of the population will always be just no way. Really. Just just no way. Even if a revolution is due tomorrow, it's like, ah, things will simmer down. (laughs) And then there are the people who are a little closer to the fire there. You've got the superbian transhumans. People who are like, yeah! And then you have the passive singularitarians kind of rapture of the nerds contingent. Well, (laughs) it'll happen and I'll just watch. And then you have the terrified, hand-flopping apocalypse millennialists who are a dwindling group because apocalypse millennialists, they're just too modish to ever stay scared of the same apocalypse for any length of time. They rapidly get bored with a particular apocalypse and shift their loyalties to a new one. So it's just hard to stay focused on the frightening aspects of the singularity, even though that was something that Vinji hammered on relentlessly in his original article. It's been completely elided by the social reaction. Instead, it's been sort of a photographic negative. It is a rapture rather than an extermination of humanity that we should struggle to survive. And then there's the really interesting group, the one I've got to keep in my eye on now, which are the comers, who are the singularity resistance, the relinquishment cadres, people who get it about this and want it not to happen. So Vinji, I think, did a very good thing by the lights of the genre. I mean, I've, I've had some fun at his expense here, but... Really, as as science fiction writers go, it is always more important to be fruitfully mistaken than to be dully accurate. (laughs) 
you know, that, that's why Vinji and myself are science fiction writers. We're not scientists. And that's, it's not our role to be scientists, and you've got plenty of them. Uh, and this is a work, Vinji, was, his, his contribution was of serious relevance in my genre. It was very, very influential literary thinking within science fiction writing. Um, and there's a quite good essay by a woman named Judith Berman, colleague of ours, called Science Fiction Without the Future, um, which is kind of a, a council of despair, really, and a kind of an anthropological study of the general societal malaise we have in imagining the future in a farther than 30-year lifespan. And it's full of a lot of sort of interesting literary crit hand-wringing about the downfall of the modernist project and so forth and so on, and probably a work of considerable interest to long now fans. Um, but the singularity has turned out to be a rather good source for science fiction. It seems like a roadblock, but that roadblock has been finessed. Um, and in fact, the singularity, like most ideas that are really appealing to science fiction writers, turns out to be very productive of fantasy elements, fantasy elements that can make the impossible seem plausible in fiction. So you can just ask questions, sort of suspend disbelief by using a singularity as, a, you know, as, a, as an explanation of events, like just why is this alien planet covered with amazing super weapons that wreak incredible marvels? Because when you think about it, that's like a great place for a science fiction novel, but makes very little sense otherwise. Well, it's because we had a singularity blow through here. That's why it came and like ripped everything apart, and now it's just like left pieces of itself that are wandering around, just bending the plot any way I want, kind of like the gods on the plains of Troy. You know, and why would science fiction stoop to this? I mean, why are they like just deploying this grand mathematical notion as like a source of plot coupons? Well, I'll explain this to you. And if you learn nothing else about science fiction, you need to know this. This is the classic Peter Nichols definition of science fiction from 1976. It's very difficult to define science fiction. Many people have tried. Okay, sci-fi can be succinctly defined, I'm quoting him, can be succinctly defined as speculation, whether based on established scientific facts or on logical pseudo-facts consistent with the framework of the fiction in question involving smelly, green, pimply aliens furiously raping or eating or both beautiful, naked, bare-breasted chicks covering them in slime, red, oozing, living slime, dribbling from every horrific orifice, squeezing out between bulbous, pulpy lips under the sensuous, velvety skin of the writhing, sweating slave girls, their bodies cut and bruised by knotted whips, brandished by giant blonde man, vast bicep androids, and written in the gothic mode. <laughs> That just rocks so hard. <laughs> so in the work of, say, Ken McLeod, you got this guy who has got a very interesting take on the singularity. He's got like a post-singularity future. So what Ken is doing, he's 
working fictionally with the people who did not get caught within a singularity. The protagonist in his book are people who remain human. They're human people living in the ruins of a passing singularity. And sometimes they go and dig up stuff. And they're combat archaeologists. They go and dig up chunks of singularity there. A rocking piece of work, very clever guy. Most brilliant Scottish Trotskyite science fiction author ever. <laughs> uh, and his pitch there is really quite similar to the hugely popular Left Behind series, uh, which deals with a very similar conceptual problem that has been found in Christian theology the post-apocalypse, what do you say about it, right? I mean, the Left Behind series is about fundamentalist Christianity without the future. It's a comfort apocalypse, kind of weird finesse, where the world has been rendered bewildering and totally unbelievable. But the little cadre of heroes and heroines within the Left Behind series, although they're subjected to enormous torment and suffering, they know that God is with them that they could find a comfort even in their very suffering. And it's had a big effect in film, the singularity. You can see this wall across the future in many popular science fiction films now, like The Matrix, Terminator, AI, where some dystopian technological event occurs and has allowed intelligent machines to take over. Um, and that part of the story becomes a kind of gap in the plot, and commonly the viewers and the characters are trying to guess what has actually happened to allow the machines to take over. And it looks especially great in the special effects, which is kind of the Hollywood reason for being. So what might things look like in a post-singularity world? Well, this is, I think, one of the most convincing imaginations of what it might be like to encounter a post-singularity creature. This is the Hans Moravec Bush robot. Hans wrote a book called Mind Children, some other similar books about robotics being our inheritors. And what you have here is a device that's been designed and or evolved for nano-manipulation and kind of infinite intelligence. If you just sort of wanted to make anything out of anything and you were unbelievably smart, this is how you would choose to, to look. You see, it's got these these fractal fingers which subdivide and subdivide and subdivide until they're small enough to just juggle atoms. And then up at the top, it's sort of like manufacturing these fruit by kind of re-knitting the atoms into whatever the hell those are, children or, you know, iPods, whatever it wants. And, you know, it doesn't really have an organic form. You know, it's a sort of a post-material form, really. It's, this is the form that can, where infinite intelligence can transmute anything into anything. And, you know, I don't think it looks very plausible, really, but I think there's a kind of design poetry to it. You know, it might not be that bad. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, you can, you can imagine yourself waking up with like an IQ of 8,000 and just sort of starting on your feet and just re-knitting yourself, you know, until, until you were bushing. Um, well, you know, Vinji is saying, I argue in this paper, he says, that we are on the edge of change comparable to the rise of human life on Earth. Well, if there was really a change comparable to that, yeah, you know, 
guys who kind of look like that, you know. That's your neighbor there. Weird monsters. Um, You know, so maybe we're right on the edge of like a fantastic 30-year transmutation into an end state that looks just like this guy. Or, um, or, Or maybe this, which is like even sexier than the bush robot in its own way. This is what's known as a utility fog. This is like one very small, super smart nano gizmo. And it just hooks up in nets, right? And it's just like little smart particles. And there are billions of them, and they're microscopic in size. So if you want anything, or you don't even want to be anything, you don't even have like the limitations of the bush robot here. It's as if the bush robot has exploded just down to the tips of its fingers, and it's communicating itself, and instead of in instantly knitting itself back together into these vast tinker toys which can kind of take on any kind of physical quality and just sort of re-knit the world closer to their heart's desire. They don't have hearts, but presumably they could make some if those seem necessary. (laughs) So, you know, we may be right on the verge of achieving this, or we may be on the edge of a new dark age and like some major new plagues and mass hunger and horrifying climate destabilization. Or just, just possibly, I mean, I know this is far-fetched, but bear with me here. We may be on the edge of nothing particularly important. <laughs> because this is a critical time in history, only maybe not. Actually, maybe it's not a critical time in history. Maybe we happen to be in a rather dull, self-satisfied time of history where we're not doing really anything of particular consequence. Maybe this is a rather squalid era of history where our leadership is hopelessly dumb and (laughs) we're just blundering around the historical landscape like complete fools. Maybe we're just flattering ourselves that we're involved in any kind of crisis. But that doesn't mean we couldn't be edging up to one. So, you know, suppose that we are. I mean, suppose this is, like, a serious problem. Well, you know, I had a discussion with this with Joel Garrow from Washington Post. He's a friend of mine, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what he and I were discussing here. And, you know, the, the, the practical problem is how the hell do you stop or run away technology? I mean, let's just say you're sort of believing Bill Joy's pitches and the singularity is sort of on the map and we don't want to be utility fogs or bush robots, so, you know, we're going to, like, try and get a grip on it. Well, what do you do, okay? Well, we can't stop a Vingian singularity of computers waking up autonomously, because we don't really know what that means. I mean, we have no way to stop waking because we can't define waking. But scientists and technologists and, like, techno-visionary types, these are actually small groups of people who are quite vulnerable. (laughs) There isn't really any such thing as a genuinely autonomous technology. We don't really have any bush robots that can self-assemble or utility fogs that can kind of spew gray slime nano catastrophe 
those are all imaginary. We don't have any of those. What we have is a situation where somebody, some human being, has to actually physically carry the can for technologies. Somebody still has to plug stuff in and do budgets and make executive decisions. Singularity fans, all these people on these lists, maybe a couple of dozen major ringleaders in the U.S. and Britain. If somebody was seriously threatened by them, it would be easy to just haul them before the House on American Singularity Committee. <laughs> or you could like appeal to the morals of scientists. Because you could ask for scientific self-regulation. Like, just don't go there, you know, and that seems plausible. I mean, scientists have been known to knock it off every once in a while with gene splicing. They, they will commonly chat about dangerous technologies, at least for a while. Um, and scientists do understand what other scientists are talking about, so you kind of got to bring them into the tent eventually. Otherwise, you can't even judge the danger. And there are other professions that do self-regulate, like lawyers or engineers or medical doctors. But um, the difficulty is there is that traditionally scientists are not supposed to consider the ethical, legal, and social implications of their discoveries. They're expected to divorce themselves from these sordid and merely practical implications of pure inquiry. Because if you don't do that, you risk a really swift and severe loss of caste in the scientific world. If you if you talk to the population generally, you become a Sagan-style pop celebrity. Or you might become some gizmo designer or some geeky R&D drone or possibly an indicted war criminal. Because the reward system for scientific culture, as we have built it, has always been strongly skewed in favor of big, glamorous, romantic, profound, very, very dangerous science. This is what we reward. We don't reward merely pragmatic survival of the human race or the biosphere because we get what we ask for. The moral culture heroes of 20th century science were people like Vannevar Bush and Albert Einstein and Andrei Sakharov. And these were men who achieved their gravitas by directly menacing humanity. I don't belittle Sakharov's bravery or sacrifice under fierce intellectual persecution, but if Andrei Sakharov had been a dissident entomologist, <laughs> no one east or west would have given him the time of day. To achieve his stature as a moral titan of the Cold War, Dr. Andrei had to invent Soviet hydrogen bombs which are aimed directly at you. A harsh assessment, but a fair one. So what could you do? Well, perhaps you could change the scientific reward system. Quit rewarding romantic breakthroughs like hydrogen bombs and instead empower all whistleblowers. Urge scientists to be more like Bill Joy. Use a carrot and stick method. You might come up with, say, the relinquishment Nobel. You agreed to stop, so we're giving you all the girls' gold and glory. Or you could destroy scientific prestige through commercialization. 
And I suspect this is what's actually happening. <laughs> you could turn the internet, which was founded by scientists and kind of reeks of their free information ethos, you could turn it into an absolute pay-per-view e-commerce outlet while outlawing all alternatives. You could see to it that every scientific instrument became patented. You could see to it that every law of nature became a trade secret. And then scientists would quickly diminish into mercenaries. They would lose their lab coats. They'd become put upon Dilbert's or perhaps top secret mandarins. Now, selling science out wholesale is a kind of novel and potent approach to managing innovation. And I think that might play out in many remarkable ways. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it really enhances the safety of the human race because many of the worst threats to human survival could probably pay off handsomely in the marketplace. So that leaves us with approach number three, which is some kind of global political reform. Really like coming to grips with the problem in some kind of coherent fashion. This is what Joel Garrow and I were talking about, and he was being the devil's advocate. He's trying to force me to imagine methods that might work. Well, it's sort of eager to shut down the imagination with a kind of classic solution that sort of says, well, we need one world government that's sort of present everywhere and sort of peeks into every nook and cranny and doesn't allow any innovation and kind of vast global Confucianism where everybody, everybody balks at that idea. We don't really have any, you know, serious one-worlder pro-sentiment in today's, in today's situation. And I think for good reason. It just doesn't seem very plausible. But then it occurred to us in our discussion, what might it be like if there were two? Not one world government, but two world governments. And not a bipolar government where you've got like a Cold War side and the you know, supposed world of freedom side. Not something geographically divided, but like two societies, two global civil societies, which were actually in intense competition, but not warfare, more like two political parties. Right? Let's just say you have two competing world orders who are busily marginalizing each other's kooks. That's how they struggle for support. I mean, they both, of course, want to achieve a singularity, but they have two different methods, two different philosophies, two different ethics. They're in genuine competition, but they're keeping one another honest in a kind of bi-party system. And one is the dominant party at any particular time, and the other is the loyal opposition. And what do they do? Well, they, they, they like, get social software together. They go out and they like, phone cam and blog every possible innovation that the other side is sponsoring. And they go over it with a fine-toothed comb. Now, they're eager to protect their own, but they can't really because they interpenetrate everywhere. And people who get sick of one can easily defect to the other side. And they're constantly luring people away from the other side, looking for anything damaging like involved in a fantastic political oppo research thing that sort of covers every human being they can find. 
Would singularities die out in a world like that? Yeah, I think they would. I think they would. They might very well. You might find that scientific advancement was sort of hammered to death in committee, and you only ended up with advancement that both sides could agree on, and there wouldn't be a whole lot of those, but they'd be sort of firmly tested. Maybe there would be a world like that. I don't think that's unimaginable. Joel and I agree that if there is a relinquishment method invented, it's not going to come from Mars. It's not going to be imposed by some council of wise men. It's not going to come out of nowhere. It's here. It's here and we know about it. We just don't know that's what it's going to be used for. Because the future is already here. It's just not well distributed yet. The seeds of this approach are already here. Where are they? Right? Singularity watch. A genuine singularity watch. You know, social software, collaborative, ubiquitous surveillance of technical trends. People who perhaps pay big money, bounties, to reveal singularitarian breakthroughs. Early adopters who become early relinquishers. You know, just because we can't imagine relinquishment working in our own society, that doesn't mean that it's impossible by principle in any society. Maybe not this society, but a different one. You know, just try to imagine a society that's had a couple of cities leveled by a singularity, Hiroshima-style, Nagasaki-style. Most societies are and always have been profoundly anti-scientific, and a good half of our own society is. We've got an alliance of the very rich and the Christian right who are running our government. And scientists are not swaggering in America in the year 2004, promising mind-shattering breakthroughs. Scientists are living in fear under this administration and really fretting about their livelihoods. And we see the Christian right getting right into it, the President's Council on Bioethics, a trend toward anti-abortion futurism. You might look up, say, the Elizabeth Blackburn scandal or Leon Cass, who I think is a, a possible model for an anti-singulatarian future. This is the President's Council on Bioethics, Reproduction, and Responsibility with the seal of the highest office on the land right on it, President's Council of Bioethics. The chairman's vision, Leon Cass, among the most urgent of our council's intellectual tasks is the need to provide an adequate moral and ethical lens through which to view particular developments in their proper scope and depth. Right? The chairman's vision, reproduction and responsibility. This is about the regulation of biotechnology at the intersection of assisted reproduction and human genetics and embryo research. That's what this pamphlet is about. And you just look at the things that Cass and his committee are interested in. Age retardation, life extension, aging and end-of-life issues, biotechnology and public policy, bioethics, cloning, drugs, children and behavior control, memory boosting and suppression, mood control, neuroethics, organ transplantation, property in the body, research ethics, sex selection, stem cell policy. That's their bailiwick. So, you know, give this guy a passive Congress, 
and give him the budget of the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, and I think he could whip it into shape. I do. I think you would see relinquishment, a lot of relinquishment. And you could argue that, well, you know, scientists would then move to North Korea. Um, but I think they were... Well, I think the response of Cass and his, and his backers would be to just simply reply, you can run, but you can't hide. Yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. Are you going to go into the caves in Afghanistan, Mr. Scientist? You, know, you will be brought to justice, or justice will be brought to you. I think that's the answer to that threat. Into the steel cage, Mr. Singularity. Into Guantanamo until you tell us who your friends are by whatever means are necessary, and then your friends will join you in there. Does that sound plausible? Not beyond imagination. Okay, well, I'm a little tired of being so sensible now. So, uh, banned in China, your assurance of quality content. <laughs> So I want to finish by, you know, blue-skying a bit, because, you know, I am a science fiction writer. I only do public policy on weekends. <laughs> okay, let's just, you know, just like, let's say that Vinci was right all along, you know, and, and let's suppose that a genuine Vinci and singularity really gets loose. We're not kidding about it. We've got, like, a burst of radical superhuman intelligence, and it's just like a complete discontinuity in human affairs, and... Things have happened to people, and they've like their brains have just gone wild, and they're like completely different from anybody human, and it's a completely discontinuous situation, and it's literally unimaginable. We can't really imagine their situation any more than like a grasshopper can imagine ours. So, what can we say about that? What can we actually say, right? Well, I think there are a few things that you can say. I think there are a few things you can you can talk about sensibly about a post-singularity world, given that one comes to exist, okay? Well, first of all, post-human, to be no longer human, the word post-human is a sound bite. Because people who are genuinely post-human will not consider themselves to be post-anything. We're like not on their agenda. The post-human means an end to us. It's an end to our concerns. But it's just the beginning of their concerns. It's just the beginning of them. Uh, so although the approach of a Vingian singularity is kind of easy to, to dramatize, the approach is easy to dramatize, that's not very relevant to my, what might really happen in some genuinely post-human world. Because post-humans don't care if contemporary science fiction writers like myself or Dr. Vingy are unable to properly imagine them our ignorance is no constraint on them. It's merely a measure of our own human limitations. But there are a few ways that we can finesse the black hole of the singularity. And I think there are four things we can confidently say about the subject. Number one, there isn't just one singularity. Because any area of scientific inquiry that was pushed far enough could provide some kind of transformative cataclysm. Cognitive would be one, artificial intelligence another, but biological ones, mechanical ones, cybernetic ones, 
manufacturing, engineering, chemistry. There really isn't any field of human knowledge that couldn't revolutionize something dramatic. And if man is the measure of all things, then there isn't any measure by which we can't be made more than human. We might become super intelligent or ageless or prosthetically enhanced or cyberneticized or any combination of those things. And we might be very severely transformed by unknown technologies that we can't even yet imagine now. So even though a singularity ends the human condition, it resolves nothing else. It would be followed by a rapid, massive explosion of following singularities new singularities within a singularitarian world. These would be ultra-cataclysmic events that would disrupt the first singularity even more than the first singularity disrupted our original human condition. Because post-humans were not content with human achievements, they'd be better at post-humanity than we are. Number three, I think this is quite vital. The post-human condition is banal. It's astounding and eschatological and ontological and full of cosmic wonder, but only by human standards. Because we may become as gods and even get pretty good at it, or something does, maybe like some chimeric genetic hybrid or a genuinely smart computer But that thrill fades fast. That thrill is merely human and parochial. By the new post-singularity standards, post-humans are just as bored and frustrated as humans ever were. They're not magic. They're still quotidian entities in a gritty, rules-based physical universe and they will find themselves swiftly and bruisingly brought up against the limits of their own condition. The limits of their own condition, whatever that limit and that condition might be. Number four is a political statement. Messy, embarrassing, reversible, goofy, catch-as-catch-can post-humanism is politically preferable to any sleek, streamlined, sudden, utter, final solution post-humanism. The best way to encounter a singularity would be to just sort of tiptoe over the event horizon for a minute or two and have the rest of us yank you back. (laughs) Then we'd be able to debrief you and see just how far you could jam that experience into language. And then there's a fifth thing we could say. It's hard for anybody, either human or post-human, to be a little bit dead. Now, death, which is known as the great leveler, will probably be considerably less level than it used to be. But the clock doesn't stop ticking whether we're here or not or whether we're human or not. As a philosophical problem, it comes down to a better way to engage with the passage of time. And I think we're getting close to one because the loss of the future, the imaginative loss of the future, is becoming acute. The most effective political actors on the planet now 
are people who want to blow themselves up. These are people who really don't want to get out of the bed in the morning and face another unpredictable day. The people of the world need a motivating vision of what comes next. They need a bone-deep awareness that more will happen after that. That the future is a process and not a destination. The future is not a noun, it's a verb. Our minds may reach the end of their tethers, but we'll never stop futuring. Thanks a lot for your attention. I didn't get to use I didn't get to use the laser. I just dig in the laser so much. I'm just glad to have a chance. Yeah, okay. It's right. green, dude. Look at that green. You were supposed to use it during the lecture. No, I'm gonna use the light like, whack like the anybody who asks annoying questions. <laughs> All right, we got some questions coming up and uh, some more coming, I hope. Um, question from Anonymous, whose email address is pajamas at earthlink.net. <laughs> question is, what about positive singularities? What about them? Next oh, question. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, how would you judge? If, if, it, if, you know, if it's a genuine singularity, it's supposed to be sort of completely unimaginable, so... No, it's difficult to sort of say. I mean, by your standards, I mean, what, a, a singularity of which you approve? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I once got asked by, by Wired magazines, like, if you could have sort of the ultimate Wired gizmo, any kind of thing you wanted, right? What kind of, like, really cool machine would you want? What would you most like? And I said, I, I wanted a box with just one big dial on the front, and when I twist it to the side, my IQ goes up to 800. Right? And yeah, that really is what I want in some sense. And if I were presented with one and was left alone in a room with it, <laughs> I really don't think I could keep my hot little monkey paws off of that dial. You know? I would hope that I'd be able to twist it back through an act of will, but. Um, I'm not sure I have the willpower to do that or even to resist twisting it in the first place. So, and, you know, that is an absolute leap into darkness. That might be positive, that might be negative. I'm not sure that any, I'm not sure that any such judgment makes any sense when the dial is twisted, but I think I would twist the dial, and I suspect that most of the people in this room would twist the dial. And this is our Faustian bargain there. So, you know, what about positive ones? I don't know, I don't think you get to make that choice. Okay, here's a practical question with that box and that dial. You're alone in the room with the box with the dial. Would you redline it or creep it up gradually? <laughs> well, you know, strictly speaking, I think I'd probably set up some little Rube Goldberg device. You know, I mean, you ought to have, like, at least as much smarts as, like, a guy indulging in autoerotic asphyxiation. 
right? Like a tangerine between your teeth and, you know. So then, so, you know, like a, I don't know, a stretchy condom over the dial, so it'd be like pitch backwards, it <laughs> automatically whips back, I, you know. I would, I would give it some design thought. I, I don't, you know. But, you know, I, I suspect, you know, I suspect that if I twisted it up to 400, um, I would almost certainly go to eight. I mean, I don't think that the me at four would sort of stop and say no. I think the me at four would sort of hesitate, get my head around it, and say, well, I got to do it again. It sounds to me like you, you crank it when you eventually get up to 800. First thing you do is take the back off the box and see if you can. Yeah, we'll go to 8,000. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I, you know, why bother there when I just put like a lazy 8 on the side and twist your IQ up to infinity? But I think that's a little much to ask from a Condé Nast publication. <laughs> It was a really good issue. <laughs> okay, first question. Boy, these are the longest questions we've ever gotten. You're, you're inspiring very prolix questions. Wouldn't germline engineering, inheritable genetic modification, be singularistic, a positive feedback, irreversible process that sparks a techno-eugenic arms race and designer babies, splintering humanity into case-like segments with increasingly less sense of sharing a common human future and shouldn't a wise society agree not to go there? Right. Um, well, I, I wrote a book uh, called Tomorrow Now that's, you know, it's out in paperback that has a, a long peroration on exactly this subject. And, you know, I get kind of, I get upset at the buzzword of designer babies, right? I mean, not because I'm upset about designer babies, but just I'm upset about the short-term thinking involved in that buzzword. I mean, first of all, you're short-circuiting the debate because you're using the won't-somebody-think-about-the-children gambit, <laughs> right? Which is always just lobotomizing to any debate. It's like just, you know, it's a hot-button issue right there. But anybody who's ever had a baby knows they don't stay babies. Nobody talks about designer toddlers. <laughs> Nobody talks about designer 11-year-olds. There are no designer teens, and there are especially no ticked-off fucking designer adults who hate you for having put you through, for having put them through that, right? I mean, why are they supposed to be suddenly dividing in lockstep into these genetic cliques of superhumans who are at one another right and left? I mean, do you think that people who've come out of test tubes, and there are many among us today, do you think they, like, walk around militating to have everybody come out of a test tube? They're doing their level best to live that down. They're not campaigning about it. And the same would be true of pretty much anybody who was produced by genetically alterated means. If you were a GMO human, imagine trying to get a date. <laughs> really, just quit thinking about this person as a baby and think of him as yourself. Walk in her shoes. Imagine talking to your mother-in-law. Well, dear, are you and Jim thinking about children? Well, I would love to have your son's children, ma'am, but my genes have been extensively altered, and there may be some really pretty serious difficulties with our children. 
What a deadly thing to have to say. I love your son very dearly, but I'm afraid that your grandchildren will have genetic content that was engineered into me by my creators. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Imagine going to a doctor. You get sick in Tanzania. Well, what's wrong with you, strange American person? I don't quite know. I don't have genes like anybody else's. Can you treat me, Tanzanian doctor? Ever seen anyone like me? Is there anyone like me? Some of the others like me didn't do too well. <laughs> Try and live their life, you know? Don't like, don't choke on the term designer baby. Babyhood is the briefest aspect of human life. Time is going to pour through the flesh of this person. They're going to go through everything you've been through. Another question? John Threlfall, are you here? Stand or wave your hand or something? There he is. Hi. As the question, is the nightmare of machines waking up anything more than the projection of our own fear of waking up from our own mechanical slumber? Well, I think there is a, a one particular sort of sci-fi thema, kind of a great objective correlative of machinery waking up. And it's not the AI, it's the robot. I mean, if you're looking for psychological projections of human form onto technology, that's what robots are about. I mean, a robot is technology with a head and two arms and a leg, two legs, and you can sort of relate to it on some para-human level. And there's just reams of stuff written about this, right? So, yeah, you know, I, I agree with you that we're, we're trying to project our own we're anthropomorphizing computation by sort of urging it to have consciousness. And, uh, you know, a lot of our anxieties about that are, are about our own anxieties that we just don't know what consciousness is. Or our sense that we ourselves are sort of blundering through life in a daze and wouldn't it be great if we sort of had God in a box. I think there's a lot of unexamined psychological baggage and that idea. But it's also, it's just part and parcel of the whole series of metaphors that sur have surrounded computation since its birth. They're all metaphors which are drawn from cognitions, like computers have memory and so forth. You know, they, well, they have, they have circuitry in which ones and zeros can be put in and removed, but that's not memory. It's not like the memory that a mouse would have or, or even like an angleworm. It's, it's really something more like shuffling huge decks of cards. You know? it's, just, it's a vast, you know, but, but we're, we're used to this. I mean, that was how we decided to describe this technology as a thinking machine. And they don't think. They don't. Uh, but we've never come up with an alternative vocabulary, which is sort of convincing, which describes what computation does. And we probably won't be able to do that until we have a vocabulary which describes what cognition does. I mean, what it really means to be conscious and what parts of our brain are really carrying the load there and how the sort of gray matter really works. And we are far away from that. We, you know, there are chunks of brain 
size of your fist inside your head. We have only the vaguest idea what these things are up to. Okay, here's uh, one that I'll uh, use as a way to remind people that the second Friday of next month is July 9th, and the speaker is Jill Tarter from Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, her title is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, a necessarily long-term strategy. <laughs> Unless they're here in the room with us now. <laughs> <laughs> and Raise your hand. <laughs> All right. Good old Fermi's paradox. Fermi's yeah. paradox is if civilizations and life and all the stuff keeps happening all the time, where are they? Yeah, what right. happened? Does this have anything to do with singularities? Well, you know, they might all be utility fogs. In which case, why would they bother? You know, um, or you know, it may be that intelligence has a short lifespan, the sort of sense of wonder has a short shelf life. Um, one of the things I always wonder about AIs is. What gets them out of bed in the morning, right? I mean, we actually want to live, you know. I mean, people want to persist, even if they're, you know, been, even if they've been lobotomized. The human body has a, a metabolic need to exist and propagate, whereas an AI, as far as I can see, has no reason to live. Why wouldn't it just shut itself off instantly? What's in it for him, you know? <laughs> What's he, what's he supposed to get? I mean, we know what we want to get. You wake up in the morning, you're hungry, you know? If there's someone attractive, you might have sex in the morning, you know? They don't have hunger, they don't have sex, they don't have thirst, they're not emotionally committed to children. They haven't, they haven't been, you know, whittled away through billions of years of evolution so that anybody who actually wants to die sort of gets immediately eaten by a cheetah. That's, <laughs> that, that never happened to machines. Why would they bother? You know, and it may be that civilizations feel the same way. I mean, there's been a lot of science fiction written about that. It just kind of Spenglerian exhaustion sets in, and you know, it's just like, shut off the transmitters. We're tired of this sooty thing, you know, and you just, you know, it could happen. Or, you know, they could vanish into interstices of stuff that, that, that we know nothing about. Or they could just be here already, and we don't really know anything about them. You know, I was, I was always amazed by UFOs. I mean, just because this is like the signifier for alienhood and society. It's like, okay, I'm gonna like go to this planet of Aborigines in a large silver ovoid that blinks and makes weird psychic noises. You know, if you were like looking for Osama, would you use a UFO? You know, just. You know, if there were aliens here and they had any idea what they were doing, I don't think we'd have any idea what they were. You know, if I were an alien, I'd like pack myself into a grasshopper. Just, you know, really. I mean, why make a fuss? <laughs> that explains why we haven't heard from them. They're all in the grasshoppers. Well, why would they want to say anything to us? See? Well, yeah. What's in it for them? You know, if they're around, they don't want to know. Or, or maybe they do want to know, and we're just not in on the secret. Okay, here's two about science fiction in relation to all this. One from Thomas. I like these email addresses. That's thomas at crackpot.org. There you go. <laughs> Sci-fi no longer seems to function as a precursor to future techno-scientific innovation. Mm. Some people call this a crisis. Doesn't this 
attitude missed the potential for sci-fi to take us to an even more meaningful place and direction? If so, where? Uh, well, I don't agree with the premise. Okay, um, let me try another well, angle on that one from Dave Bauer. Dave Bauer here? Somewhere. Why would a post-singularity, post I guess, body of people wipe us out? Why would they care about us enough to wipe us out? Ian M. Banks gives a scenario in which the post-humans interact with the humans, enabling us to live better. So does that answer the first question? Yeah, right. Well, I think in a true Vingian singularity, the idea is that there's some, like, just cyclone of burst cognition which wipes all before it. I, no, I, I don't think this is, like, you know, necessarily that they turn into aliens who are sort of inherently hostile. It's more like, you know, it's very difficult for anyone human to resist the temptation to do it, and you're just sort of swept into it in what, what may be the blink of an eye. It could be something that spreads, you know, with the with the facility of a computer virus and it's just, you know, kind of a, a gray goose scenario. I don't think they necessarily have to be hostile. And you know, I could imagine some post-humans who were at least as kind to us as we are to say marmots or, you know, <laughs> livestock or, you know, they make great pets. Maybe we're tasty. Uh, uh, you know, on, on the subject of the earlier question, like why don't science fiction writers spend more time promoting technological development to the general population, I actually think that particular role has been pretty well taken over by industry journals. Really? You know, if you want to know about futuristic gizmos, you can like read any number of futuristic gizmo magazines that will actually sell you some. You don't have to like promulgate these, uh, these ideas. And besides, that's not a literary activity. That's a promotional activity. And it, you know, and it dates back to the very early days of science fiction when um, you know, it was founded by Hugo Gernsback, whose other publications were radio experimental magazines. He was a guy who was actually selling hardware. He's selling crystal radio sets to young people and then decides to include some fiction. Um, but you know, it's just very difficult for that to compete with, say, the AT&T You Will campaign or any number of really sort of high-powered, technological, visionary, commercial promotions. I think, you know, contemporary science fiction doesn't really have to carry the can for industrial development. I think it really needs to ask literary questions about technological situations. You should ask questions like, what does that mean and how does it feel? Which is really something you don't see tackled except through literature. Okay, last question. Um, by the way, I should say that Bruce Sterling's book, The Zenith Angle, some of you have them. Uh, Bruce will stay around and sign them if you would like that. The shattered ashes of your speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will remain up here. I'm hemorrhaging charisma up here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Okay, here's the last question. This is, this is the... Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. The, the, the takeaway as we head back out to our cars. Um, the singularity has is, is made people tense. Tense with excitement, tense with fear. Are you counseling being more relaxed about the singularity? Um, well, I don't... I, you know, I think... 
I doubt that we'll actually have ever a, a, the kind of Vingian singularity that sort of spreads in 15 minutes and sort of changes everything in a tremendous wave. But I am actually kind of concerned about radical advances in altering human cognition. I suspect that sometime around the 2060s, we are actually going to be faced with some kind of moral, ethical, legal, social, institutional challenge to decide what the heck we're going to do to our gray matter. It's really going to be like LSD that works, right? I mean, instead of merely making you feel like it does on acid, I'm so creative. You know, vistas of imagination are opening. You really will have vistas of imagination open, and you really will be sort of amazingly creative, or whatever. And there will probably be any number of things that can be done under different circumstances, and some will pay really well, and some will have military implications, and some will have, you know... It really is, it really is a, the, the prospect of a genuinely profound disruption in the human condition where people who have undergone that process may really have very little to say to the rest of us that is intelligible. So I, I do worry about that. I think that's a real-world challenge. It's not necessarily a threat, but I think we would, we would be wise to contemplate that and to arm ourselves before the letter and to really ponder it seriously and uh, you know, sort of try to bend our best efforts to, to understanding that, not to panic over it, not to be mind-blown about it, but to really take it seriously. I would hope that would happen. Thank you, Bruce Sterling. See you next month. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.